Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I am your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we do here is we talk about pop culture and we show how it's influenced by history because everything is influenced by history, either deliberately or subconsciously. And what I'm going to do this time round is I'm hoping you, the title of this one was Crazy Rich Shang-Chi. And so you're hopefully working it out that I'm going to be talking about Crazy Rich Asians. So your family is rich. And the Shang-Chi Marvel movie. But I'm also going to stick in Raya and the Last Dragon as well. Why? Because these are all examples of mainstream Hollywood movies very much appealing to Asia and Southeast Asian markets, which is a little bit odd because Hollywood is in California, you know, the place where the Wild West ran into the sea. So why is that happening? And to understand that, we're going to eventually end up into a little bit of history around not only how Hollywood started, I've mentioned that in the past, but how did Hollywood become the big one? And on top of that, I'm going to, of course, be looking at imperialism and immigration as well. Wow. Lots of big topics on three not exactly super serious movies. Let's get into it, shall we? I'm going to start off with the middle one, Raya and the Last Dragon, because I said I wasn't going to mention too much about that. That is a Disney animated movie about a princess called Raya who finds a dragon. It's all there in the title. What can I say? Raya, princess of heart, my daughter, you are now a guardian of the dragon gem. And I would say that I watched it and it was good. The problem with it is I'm obviously not the target market. If you're an eight-year-old, it's probably fairly deep. And therefore, as a 48-year-old, it's not really fair for me to say that, yeah, I, I got some of the plot from this and I got some of the plot from that. And I understand that it's a bit derivative. But, you know, it was never trying to be Citizen Kane. OK, that's an unfair comparison. I always remember Barry Norman was the reviewer of movies in Britain in the 1980s. He had like film and then insert name of the year, like 86, 87, etc. And he liked a certain type of movie, which is fine. But the problem was he would sometimes complain that there wasn't much characterization in something like Lethal Weapon. 
Which may be fair, but that's not the point of Lethal Weapon. It's a bit like saying, oh, the latest adaptation of Pride and Prejudice is sadly lacking a car chase. Again, that's not what you're paying your money for to see in, in Pride and Prejudice. It's your turn to say something, Mr. Darcy. That railroad crossing up there is exactly a quarter mile away from here. On green, I'm going for it. My point here is that when you go back, you, you had all these reviewers looking at things a certain way and it would kind of drive me crazy. You know, obviously today things are a bit more uh, democratic, let's use that word. Anybody can review. I am right now reviewing Raya and the Last Dragon. So if you want to sit your child in front of a good, a, a genuinely good animated movie, the animation is spectacular in it. it. No expense has been spent. It looks gorgeous. It's a really good story. And in it, you've got Gemma Chan, Benedict Wong, and Aquafina. Now, why do I mention those three characters? Aquafina does the voice of the dragon, kind of comedy voice. She's got kind of a distinctive sort of raspy voice. Oh, no. What? What is it? We forgot to bring a gift for the tail chief. She's a great comedian, and she kind of steals the show, as anybody with these kind of anarchic figures or sort of like the, the more sort of chaotic or bigger-than-life characters. 10,000 years will give you such a crick in the neck! Why do I mention those three? Because now, now Ryan and Ross Dragon, it's fine. You know, you like Kung Fu Panda, you like Ryan and the Last Dragon, okay? However, the one thing I will say that, that kind of caught me off guard is one of the reviews I went was, at last, Disney, after 90 years, tackles the fairy tales of Southeast Asia. And I was thinking, that's a very loaded statement to stick in in a review about this. And it's like, I get that things like The Little Mermaid and Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Beauty and the Beast, these are all Western European fairy tales. But that's the culture of America too. If you're sitting there waiting for another country to have a good stab at your country's history or culture, you might be sitting and waiting for a very, very long time. As a friend of mine said, admittedly he said this a couple of years ago, why does America make all these World War II movies about Americans? Why can't they make them about the Brits? And it's like, because that's not what's going to put bums on seats. That's why they made Saving Private Ryan. Now, Saving Private Ryan is arguably the greatest war movie of all time. It's remarkable as a film. And I'm pleased to see in the last few years, we've had Dunkirk in 1917, which is some of these conflicts, these global conflicts from a British perspective. Great, yay, wonderful. However, yeah, you can't be angry at the Americans sort of bigging up the American soldiers and then you know, perhaps being a bit flippant about the British contribution in World War II, when it's an American-funded movie starring Americans for Americans by Americans, okay? Kind of makes complete sense in that situation. And I would say the same thing. If Southeast Asia is waiting for Disney to get to their fairy tales, yeah, that's why it took 90 years, because they've had lots of other, more familiar fairy tales to tell. Then let's come on to... Crazy Rich Asians, Monster Smash 2018, directed by John Chu, and it stars Constance Wu, Henry Golding, they're the sort of star-crossed lovers, as it were, but in the background we got Michelle Yeoh, we got Gemma Chan, and we got Aquafina. We were inspired by the horror of Mueller in Versailles. And Donald Trump's bathroom. Hang on, I've said some of those names before. And yeah, I'm going to very briefly sort of like jump back over to Shang-Chi and say in that that actual Shang-Chi is a guy called Simu Liu, who I'll talk about more later on, but you've got Aquafina, Michelle Yeoh, and Benedict Wong again. So there's clearly a fairly small pool of 
Asian American or Asian European actors that Hollywood is calling up and asking for people to come along. Aquafina had been in all three of these movies. She's great in all of them. And also, just shout out to Jumanji 2. She's great in that. The whole sort of body swap thing is amazing. So she looks like a relatively young Asian woman, but playing basically Danny DeVito. Uh, what, what, what are we doing here now? That is sort of chef's kiss perfection in terms of comedy. Well done her, I'm a big fan of hers. So then we come to Crazy Rich Asians, which kind of made, to be fair, you know, the likes of Henry Golding and Aquafina have been around for years. But what got everybody's attention is when movies make money. And this is an example of, in this podcast that I do, I talk effusively about many different things, but I don't like all pop culture. So I said Raya and the Last Dragon was fine. It's a, it's a really above average, a four out of five star kids movie, but I'm not a kid anymore. So it's not, and because I haven't grown up with it, it's clearly not going to be in my DVD collection or I'll pay to stream it or whatever. I know it's free on Disney Plus, but that's how I watched it. But Crazy Rich Asians is an example of a piece of pop culture didn't like. And I'm, I'm not going to be... I don't know, some kind of semi-racist incel going, oh, why do we have to do stories about Asians or anything like that? No, not, not at all. I have a fundamental problem with rom-coms because in my opinion, and this has been my opinion since the 1990s, they're the lowest common denominator. There are some amazingly romantic films, a film that I watched three times in the cinema and the day it came out on video, because it's the 1990s, I bought it and took it home and sat there and blubbed my way through it, is The English Patient. Now, this is an example of a film that's been very much forgotten. It won nine Oscars, okay? It's an amazing, visually stunning, and oh my goodness, what a fabulous romantic. You get two romances for the price of one in this particular movie, and it's based on a, an amazing book as well. And I, I, I just cannot, I've heard some people say it's very slow. It's like a lot of older movies, things like The Godfather, the amount of parents I know who, where their kids get into their teen years go, all right, have a look at one of the greatest movies ever made. And the kid's response is, it's a bit slow, it's a bit dull. You know, we tend to like things a bit snappier nowadays. That's Now, I still think that The Godfather is one of the greatest films ever made. And my age-appropriate older son has watched both that and Godfather Part Two, And he really enjoyed them. But then again, I showed my kids early on in their lives things like The Seven Samurai, which is black and white and in Japanese subtitles. So, yeah, they're kind of used to the fact that not everything whizzes along like a Marvel movie. But, hey, they like Marvel movies too. Okay, so English Patient's a great example of, like, deeply romantic. And I cannot recommend that movie enough. And then there's comedies. Spinal Tap, Anchorman. An airplane. You'd better tell the captain we've got to land as soon as we can. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Blazing saddles. You know, the, the list goes on and on and on. The thing about comedies, of course, is they're very personal. Everybody agrees what's dramatic, but what makes you laugh is very much down to you. And if you don't find it funny, that's fine. I mean, you can turn around and say, I found The Godfather a bit slow, and that's your opinion, fine. But if you turn around and say, it's a poorly made movie with terrible acting, you can demonstrably prove that that's the wrong opinion. But yeah, if it doesn't make you laugh, 
it doesn't make you laugh. But there are these comedies, these out and out comedies that are just there, gag, gag, gag. And I believe that with Airplane, the movie, the motion picture, has the most amount of gags in any film. It's only about 90 minutes long, but sometimes they're telling a joke in front of a visual joke going on in the background. It's it's an incredible, I mean, obviously not all of them hit, and some of them are very much of their time. It came out in 1980. But, you know, that to me is an example of a comedy. Anchorman, another one. I remember seeing the trailer for Anchorman and I did not laugh at all. I thought it looked atrocious. And then I went to see it and you just have to sort of slip into the stupidity of Anchorman and I absolutely loved it. And my wife, favourite comedy movie ever, Anchorman and Anchorman 2. That's it. There you go. I love a good comedy and I love a good romance, but generally rom-coms aren't really very romantic and they're not really that funny either. They don't, they, you know, they're, because they're trying to build an overall structure and plot and you're trying to make you care about the characters, the characters can't be particularly zany or anything like that. And so you get, you know, a, a good rom-com would be an example of Hitch. It genuinely is funny and it genuinely is quite sweet in terms of the romance there. That's a Will Smith movie. If you haven't seen that, it's, it's fun. It's fun evening out. I think probably the funniest rom-com ever is Bridget Jones's Diary. That has got a lot of really good gags in it and it's got some great acting in it too. It's 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 a good fun rom-com, but most rom-coms are just meh. They're just middle of the road, play it safe in every possible way and and it's just uh. Well, that pastime. And I think that Crazy Rich Asians, the hype on it, the reason why I'm doing this podcast, I've only recently watched Crazy Rich Asians. I knew it was a monster smash and I knew there were all these great actors in it and good to see something that's you know, ethnically, culturally a bit different. And I sat there for more than an hour and a half and didn't laugh once. I don't know what it thinks its comedy is coming from, but I laugh at pretty much anything. My children have asked me, to be quieter laughing at sitcoms like Modern Family. Dad, you you laugh at everything. It's like, well, okay, fair enough. I am an easy person to make laugh and I was not finding anything in it funny. Now, if you want to come on me on social media and go, Jim, this bit was funny, that was funny. Oh, I was rolling in the aisles. I'd love, genuinely love to know, where did I miss all the jokes? And the other problem is that with Crazy Rich they these people are super rich. And whereas the story is basically around Constance Wu and Henry Golding, they've met in America. Constance doesn't know that Henry is, is fabulously wealthy. Then turns out he really is fabulously wealthy. But she is a professor of psychology and game theory from New York University. She's not exactly poor or dumb herself. Highly capable woman. You know, if this doesn't work out with Henry... She's more than capable of getting herself another man. Just won't be as rich, but she's quite clearly not interested in the money. She's interested in the love. And that's fine. That's great. And, you know, there's genuine chemistry between the two. I guess the rom is much, much higher than the com in this one. But I was sitting there thinking, I do not get this at all. And what I've seen subsequently, I think a lot of people fell over themselves because this is directed by an Asian American man and this is sort of starring all this sort of like Asian, basically there's hardly any white people in it and that's fine, that's great. But 
that doesn't make it automatically a good movie. And I think people were so falling over themselves with the novelty of it. An example would be, I was really expecting something like my big fat Greek wedding, which was, you know, you don't have to be Greek to get the idea of these sort of like these cultural idiosyncrasies with like the, the new nation that people are in. And, you know, it, but it's genuinely trying to be funny on multiple occasions. Crazy Rich Asians is beautifully shot as a film. And, you know, the money's all up there on screen. I don't know how many very, very expensive cars they had to very briefly rent, put into the parking lot, take the footage, and then very carefully get them back without a scratch on them. You know, there are literally million dollar cars in this movie. But because of that, it's sort of like, oh no, well, the fabulously rich guy get the fabulously intelligent girl in his fabulously wealthy and privileged lifestyle. I don't care. As much as everybody is trying their hardest, I think they are too rich to actually care to be honest and also there's just some really dumb moments there's a wedding in it and they flood the aisle with water and then the the bride walks down in these pools of water and it's sort of like that's stupid you're gonna slip and fall over you're already nervous on your wedding's day also when she steps out of the water onto the cold marble floor of the the church she's going to, you know, you're statistically more likely to slip because your feet are wet. And now also all of the bridesmaids also are wet. Just, just, oh, that was dumb. And uh, there's, there's, there's so many dumb things in this film that make no sense whatsoever. There's a plant that only flowers for nighttime one day a year. And it's like, oh, it's beautiful, it's here. It's like, again, biologically speaking, I'm not entirely sure how a species, where I presume most pollinating insects are asleep at night. I mean, it's basically moth territory at nighttime and they're not known for being pollinators. And also because it's only open for 12 hours, that doesn't give it much time to breed. It's probably going to die out. Now, again, please, if that's a real plant, tell me about it. But there just seem to be moments of just real stupidity in it. It was dumb. It wasn't particularly entertaining. It definitely wasn't funny. Maybe a little bit romantic, but I just, there were no stakes. Zero stakes. Okay, will Constant Wu get on with her potential mother-in-law played by Michelle Yeoh? Maybe? I mean, again, people have had bad relationships in the past with their in-laws. It all hangs on Henry, and Henry's utterly besotted with Constance. There's no threat to that relationship whatsoever. It just isn't a very good film. Sorry, that's my take on that. After hardly gushing about the other two films, I thought I would definitely finish on the pop culture side of things with Shang-Chi. Wow. The Ten Rings gave our family power. What a film, really loved it. Definitely one of the better Marvel, you know, it's, it's hard to work out. I think there's been 24 of them now, Marvel movies. And then there's the TV shows as well. So which is overall the best full stop? I couldn't possibly tell you. But what I loved about Shang-Chi is, well, let me take a step back. So Simu Liu is Korean. And actually there's a slightly bum note in it early where he explains how he's best mates with Aquafina, And somebody said, hey, Gangnam Style. Wopan Gangnam Style. He goes, I'm not Korean, I'm Chinese. And it's like, I've known you from another TV series where you are Korean. You're very proud to be Korean. So that probably stuck in your throat a little bit to explain it, but I'm pretty sure the money helped. But yeah, so I first saw Simu 
in this brilliant TV show called Kim's Convenience, which I can, oh boy, can I relate to it. What's it about? It's about Mr. Kim and his family and his eldest estranged son is played by Simu. And it's about a Korean family in Canada. And it's the immigrant experience. You know, Mr. Kim's convenience is in convenience store, corner shop. And he's worked hard all his life to try and give his family, he's got a son and a daughter, a better life than what he had. It's really nice. It's really fun. And again, although like, like my big fat Greek wedding, Kim's convenience may be riffing specifically on Korean culture or Greek culture in the case of the other one. But if you have immigrant parents or if you, you know, have had the immigrant experience yourself, just this sort of way that people try and they kind of get the new countries. They really are enthusiastic and want to be part of the new country's culture, but don't quite get it. But it's in their hearts. They always know that the old ways are best. So it can lead to almost a bit of immigrant racism about the country they're in where they're probably having racism against them. You know, I've seen this with my father, for example. He's got this thick accent, which nobody can place. And so you'll get some people calling him a bloody foreigner or something like that. You know, when he used to have his, his store in Delicatessen in Portobello Market in London, but he would also sometimes complain about all the foreigners. It's sort of like, Dad, you do know you weren't born here. And, you know, people can't pronounce my surname because it isn't exactly Anglo-Saxon. So anyway, Kim's Convenience, the first four series are great. The fifth series went a bit weird. They decided to turn it more into a drama, which it never was. They give Mr. Kim's wife, Mrs. Kim, they give her multiple sclerosis and there's nothing funny about that. And they start playing it down going, oh, it's not that serious, it's not that serious. Yeah, but it's also incurable. And it's like, I love these characters, but I also love these characters as a bit of escapism. I don't want to see how tough life is. Thank you very much. Me and my senorita, Mrs. Akimi, to go to costume party. Appa, what are you doing? I'm a Mexican burrito. <laughs> Think you mean bandito? Yeah, same, same. But clearly, by season five, Simu had got the gig with Marvel because suddenly he's having to work away from the family and his girlfriend and he's very game online. He's sort of like on Zoom talking to his girlfriend and sort of like putting on silly outfits and, and clearly he's doing this, I guess, in the equivalent of his flat while he's filming Shang-Chi for real. And the other thing I notice is that he used to have tattoos in Kim's Convenience. He doesn't have tattoos in Shang-Chi and strangely enough in these online video footage in season five, the tattoos have gone. Again, Marvel's the future, Marvel's the serious money. And, you know, I, I encourage you to go online and see some of his interview. He's a lovely guy. He started his career as a stuntman. So a chance to do acting rather than stunt work, you know, that that's good. But of course, Shang-Chi pulls both those things together. And just hearing his interviews about what it was like to get a chance to play an Asian superhero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I've never met him, but because of Kim's convenience in this, I feel like I know him. And he, he genuinely sounds like a down-to-earth guy. He's one of these ones you, you're rooting for him to do well in his career. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. But uh, Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, this is the really clever thing from the point of view of Marvel. Don't worry, everybody, I will get to all the history stuff in a minute, is back in Iron Man 3, well, you've got Batman and the Joker. You've got Superman and Lex Luthor. There's the kind of these key enemies, these nemesises to these heroes. And in the comic books of Iron Man, the big bad is the Mandarin, and he runs this sort of Ten Rings secret organization. And in Iron Man 3, spoiler coming up for Iron Man 3, which is more than 10 years old now, and you've had time to watch it, there is this brilliant thing Thing where you see the Mandarin and eventually Tony Stark, Iron Man, catches up with the Mandarin and it turns out everything's fake. Actually it's a, a brilliant performance by ben, Sir Ben Kingsley as basically this British actor who's pretending to be the Mandarin because all of it's a myth. Where's the Mandarin? Where is it? Whoa, 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 he's here. He's here? But he's not here. He's here, but he's not here. It's great. It's really funny in the context of that movie. It drove fans of Iron Man crazy. It's a bit like finding out the Joker is just some guy putting on a clown nose. That's not acceptable. You've just ruined this much beloved character who's been around for decades. So it really did upset people, but also it meant that the Ten Rings organization, which is very briefly shown in Iron Man 1, and then it sort of turned into almost this joke in Iron Man 3. It's a real thing, if you like, in the Marvel Universe, so what do we do? And so they do very cleverly in this movie, in Shang-Chi. I'm not going to go into all the details. I'm not going to spoil anything in Shang-Chi. I'll talk tonally about it in a moment. 
but they very cleverly rewrite that Ten Rings thing and make it work. They stitch it all together. So bravo to the screenwriters of Shang-Chi. But the other thing is, and I don't know if this is a deliberate nod or not, but right at the beginning of Shang-Chi, you get Simu Shang-Chi, as you later find out is his real name, He's basically got a dead-end job. So in essence, it's almost as if the character from Kim's Convenience were picking up with him right at the beginning, and he's got a friend who's played by Aquafina. And then we find out that he's got real kick-ass martial arts abilities, and there's this amazing fight sequence in a bus. And, you know, it felt quite John Wick. I mean, it's not bloody or anything like that, but it's, it's proper martial arts. The problem I have with these sort of like higher level martial arts, the sort of wushu stuff from, from China, where everyone's sort of like literally flying, you know, they point their sword and they then fly and then they sort of like land on a cloud. It's like, none of this is realistic. I don't believe any of this. There's no threat here. Whereas the great thing in the fight scene on the bus, he's wearing jeans and a t-shirt and, you know, he's trying to sort of dodge out the way of blades and things like that. And he might accidentally punch the sort of the stop bus sign and that kind of thing. And people are banging their heads on windows and so on and so forth. It's obviously, it's not really possible, but it feels real. So at the very beginning, we get something that feels like Kim's Convenience. Then the first big action sequence feels like John Wick. And by the time we get to the end, we've literally got dragons in a fantasy land. So let's say Lord of the Rings. And I can't think of another movie that takes you from something as, as quiet and normal as a sort of dead-end job in America up to the levels of Lord of the Rings. It's the thing with Lord of the Rings is it already starts off fantastical. The opening scene is about the creation of the One Ring and the battle against Sauron. So we already start pretty fantastical. So the fact that this takes you on this journey, I have heard some people saying, by the time you get to the fantasy land, it's a bit too much for me. Okay, fine, you know, that's your opinion. But if you allow it to draw you along, boy, what a journey. And all in just one movie rather than a trilogy or anything like that. And throughout, you get Simu, he's just dripping with charisma. He's not some of these sort of like lunks where it's like it's all muscle and, and nothing else. He's got a sense of humor. It's almost a like wink to the camera. I really am hoping that there are some big, big things from him in the future. I mean, let's face it, he's shown his comedy chops in a sitcom. You know, he's now shown his action chops in a big budget movie. He's hoping he has a really successful career moving on from that. So... Let's get into the other stuff. Actually, just before I do, and just back to the whole immigrant experience, Shang-Chi is probably the most obscure character that Marvel has pulled out of the woodwork yet. I mean, there were some pretty obscure characters pulled out of the Suicide Squad recently, also that came out in the summer of 2021. But Shang-Chi has never really had his own comic. And he's an example where early on, in you know, when he was first created... This was a time when cultural sensitivities really weren't out there. And so he's literally inked in in the comic book, Yellow. And he's the son of Fu Manchu. And it's all sort of like the the worst of... It's, it's not deliberately racist, but it's staggeringly culturally tin-eared at best to modern world because it's all this sort of fetishization of orientalism as it used to be called if you see what I mean and that instantly that probably fits in your head what we're talking about here so yeah 10 out of 10 for them to, to pull this out but why is Hollywood pulling out this incredibly obscure slightly embarrassing character from very niche comics in the Marvel world I mean people have not been reading Shang-Chi comic books for the last 30 years avidly. He's a very, very minor character. 
I said I'd start off with uh, creation of Hollywood. We get the invention of cinema in the very late 1800s, moving pictures. And it's actually France that starts with the Lumiere brothers. They're the ones, they're not, they didn't actually have the first moving image. That was actually in Britain sort of showing a horse galloping because so they, they were trying to follow a bet about whether or not the horse actually left the ground as it galloped. And they sort of like the horse sort of ran through a whole series of cameras and that's how they stitched it together. It turned out, hey, it looks like it's moving. Anyway, that's how moving pictures began. But France very much started it. And a lot of it's very fantastical. You get science fiction movies happening, you know, roundabout. 1900s are quite remarkable. Obviously, it's all silent. There are British films, there are Russian films, Japanese films, so on and so forth. At that point, America is the same as everywhere else. And because they're silent, all you had to do, so you had all the scenes, but it didn't matter which language those scenes were in, it was the in-between cards, which of course you could very easily cut out and you could have a French version, English language version, Mandarin version, etc. Okay, so every country had an equal chance then. In America themselves, as I mentioned before, the reason why Hollywood did it, because at that time California was not heavily populated, that would have been the East Coast, New York, and New York did have a film industry, but the great thing about Hollywood and California is all that glorious sunshine, so you could literally just have backlot set design out in the open. You didn't need sort of very expensive and very, very hot electrical lights, you could just use the sun. And also, you're near the ocean, so if you want an ocean scene, you've got that nearby. You're near desert, you're near forest, you're near mountains. So all these kind of shots could be very easily constructed in Hollywood. That's why Hollywood beat, well, that's why West Coast, if you like, beat East Coast. And then, weirdly, the other thing that helped Hollywood was World War One, Because at that point, France and Britain and, you know, all the other powers suddenly had to pour all their, there was no time for movies. They had to pour everything they got into fighting. And so, yeah, suddenly the French, very vibrant French film industry just stopped for five years. Same with Britain as well. And that's when Hollywood, in conjunction with the likes of Charlie Chaplin, etc., you know, not only had they got some great talent there, but they weren't really competing. So really by the end of World War I, Hollywood had stolen a march on everywhere else, basically. You know, what's interesting is that other countries have had, you know, very successful film industries. Actually, the one that produces more films than anywhere else is not Hollywood. It's actually Bollywood or the Indian film industry. But what's interesting is in the first half of the 20th century, India was under British imperial rule. And so it's actually Britain helping to create this culture. And there was a great suspicion because, quite frankly, some of these films were not exactly pro-British. To this day, there is a very anti-British sentiment in some of these things. They quite like the Scots, but basically, if there's an English person in it, they're the bad guy, just so you know. You could argue it's reverse racism, although I've heard some people say, well, you know, it, this is the people who had been a part of the empire pushing against the original rulers of the empire. That's true. But, you know, now that we're in the 21st century, if you're, and, and I've actually seen this, if you actually got an Indian person waiting up, pretending to be a British soldier, trying to basically coerce a woman into sleeping with them because that's what British officers do. Racist depiction of, of British soldiers, quite frankly. So anyway, so there's that. But, you know, just to sort of shout out, you know, if you ask Indian, you know, experts on film, what's the Citizen Kane or 
give me one of the early greats of Indian cinema, which did actually come out while it was still under imperial rule, you get Mother India. You know, that that's the critical one out there. And fast forwarding, you, you know, one of the biggest budget blockbuster ever is Lagan, which is, again, a story about Indians. It's based loosely on a true story where basically the local imperial overlords British people challenged the local Indians for all their food, all their sort of grain and so on and so forth. That was the gamble for their game of cricket. And so it is the most cinematic depiction of cricket ever. Saying that, though, that is not a very cinematic sport. You can play test cricket for an entire summer and can end up in a draw. How you can spend a whole summer playing a game against two teams and still not know which one's the best, I have no idea, okay? Cricket is an insanely long game. Sorry, I really respect Tom Holland, but that's the one thing I do rather disagree because he eats, sleeps and breathes cricket and I could, I've, I'm very bored by that thing. Anyway, moving on. Why are we now appealing to uh, the, the sort of Asian groups? Because of the power changes over the eras. Back in the 1990s, there was black cinema. I mentioned Will Smith. Unlimited technology from the whole universe, and we cruise around in a Ford POS. People like him and Samuel Jackson were in big budget Hollywood movies, bankable stars. There were, you know, black comedies, black action movies. This was a common thing in cinema. But Asia hadn't really become the powerhouse that it is now. So if you want a film to be released and appeal to people around the world, unless you're going to play into cultural cliches, this is why the whole world loves Downton Abbey. If I were to search for logic, I should not look for it among the English upper class. But that is not what Britain actually is like. By comparison, people will not be watching in Singapore a gritty urban story of working men's struggles in Liverpool during the miners' strike or something like that. I'm sort of piling on cliche on cliche, but the point is, you know, that's kind of a thing, but it's not really what the rest of the world cares about. You care about people who have your points of reference and kind of look like you. So let's give people what they want. Let's start appealing to the Asia market because now in the 21st century, it's the big one. Indeed, in 2020, admittedly, with all the problems around the shutdowns and lockdowns and cinemas being shut most around the world, this was the first time where suddenly about half of the top 10 global box office hits were Chinese because the Chinese very quickly were able to get their cinemas open again. And the domestic Chinese market is now almost as big as the American market. And the thing is something like Shang-Chi will not make its money back just in the North American market. It has to go all the way around the world. And it had a massive opening weekend, so it clearly did something right. And that's excluding China. China is a bit sort of more cautious about this stuff. They, you know, they don't want anything politically sensitive and things like that. And Mulan that came out in 2020, which should have come out in 2019, that had some political furore around it. I'm not bothered going into it, but it bombed in China. And I could have told you it was going to bomb in China because if you're taking an actual Chinese folklore thing, filming it all in English and, you know, the martial arts are OK for a Disney movie rather than what a people brought up on, you know, the likes of Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, etc. in in China, it looked really quite tepid. It was a bit meh. Your job is to bring honor to the family. It was a bit crazy rich Asians to them for, from my perspective. So yeah, so that's why you're getting these movies coming out this way. 
One of the more unusual things about Crazy Rich Asians is, well, first of all, all the names I was talking about there, Constance Wu, Henry Golding, Michelle Yeoh, Gemma Chan, etc. Those are clearly Western names at the front of it. And you've also got people like Henry Golding clearly having a British accent, showing you this kind of cultural bias that happens in the world. You want to go to one of the world's best universities, go to the University of Paris, or you go to Yale, or you go to Oxford or Cambridge. Those are the ones that can demand high amounts of money because everybody around the world agrees that they're really good universities. So, you know, maybe the facilities in Shanghai University are better, but nobody's really heard of that one. So there's this kind of cachet around it too. So it is showing you that even when you have somewhere like China really coming to the forefront and really trying to show the world how it doesn't need America or anything like that, how it can challenge Western concepts, even there, there's a little bit of sort of, mm, can, can, we, can you let us into your universities? You know, there's kind of like, there's a sort of, oh, I suppose we're going to have to admit that, you you know, your, your universities are better known than our universities. It also happened around the vaccines in 2020 and 2021. China produced two vaccines and really wanted to push them around the world. But they were very... Uh, how can I put this politely? Uh, they're very ambiguous about the research around them and also very ambiguous about the results around them. And so, whereas basically the whole world, the likes of AstraZeneca and your Pfizer's, BioNTech's, etc., Moderna's, so on and so forth, you know, those were made by Western technology, but it was quite often distributed to Western countries. So if you're Africa, come on, bring on in the, the Chinese one. But actually, because they were being so secretive about it, and, you know, it subsequently it looked like they weren't as good as the Western ones, this kind of vaccine diplomacy that's evolved over the pandemic, again, didn't quite work the way China wanted it to. The last thing I'm going to say, which has always sort of tickled me, is that Crazy Rich Asians is based in Singapore. And Singapore is a really interesting place. It used to be British. They point this out in the movie. But the more complicated thing about it is it used to be part of Malaya. So Malaya was obviously part of the British Empire and you know, had been for a century or two. And, you know, you then get World War II. And after World War II, the British Empire starts winding down. And one of the things that shows you the complexity of the British Empire is unlike Pretty much every other empire, Britain did not spend its time desperately spending billions and you know, lots of blood desperately trying to hang on to their imperial possessions. They basically allowed countries to leave when they said, I don't want to be part of this anymore, thank you very much. You know, you know, the first place in Africa to become independent was Ghana, formerly the Gold Coast. And then you've got, you've got India, obviously, who I've already mentioned. That was even before 1950. So actually Britain just sort of allowed it to go. But if you compare it to the Ottoman Empire or the Roman Empire, they just fought tooth and nail to try and hold on to what they got. And it all was just sort of slowly imploded as there were just more and more rotten rulers. And if you're turning around saying, hey, Jim, that's a long time ago. For starters, the Ottoman Empire actually dissolved only a generation before the British Empire in the 1920s, so it wasn't that long ago. But let's look at the French in the 20th century, shall we? They ended up fighting incredibly bloody wars and pointless wars in French Indochina, which we nowadays call Vietnam, and Algeria as well. By the way, Battle of Algiers is a French movie about that, that very violent, bloody situation, which was so edgy, was so accurate, it was banned in France for decades, 
and was so edgy and so accurate, it was used by the CIA to show people how insurgencies operate. That's how good it is. If you have not seen the Battle of Algiers, you may not have seen that many black and white movies in French with English subtitles, that's the one you want to watch because it's really very, very impressive. So, yeah, as the British were doing what I'm about to say in Malaya, the French were fighting in other countries and losing and also very much annoying themselves and uh, annoying the locals and showing themselves to be the bad guy imperialists. But in Malaya, what happened was the British were ready to pull out, but the authorities said, hang on, we're dealing with a communist insurgency here. This is only going to get worse when you leave. Could you please stay, fight this insurgency for us, and then when you've won it, then leave and weirdly Britain said I'm mean, obviously I'm paraphrasing here but that's basically what happened and this is in the 1950s obviously the Vietnam War the one with the Americans was happening in the 1960s and the weird thing is the British won that one we are talking about British soldiers in a jungle fighting insurgents hit and run tactics it was this actual campaign that led to the concept of hearts and minds if you go in and improve the local situation better they're more likely to give you assistance than the other guys you're the good guys, the other guys are seen as the bad guys. That was created by the SAS in Malaya in the 1950s. Indeed, it was what was known as the uh, Malaya Emergency. It was a war, but they called it an emergency for insurance reasons, so companies could get their money to sort of cover themselves in terms of insurance costs. I know that's weird. But actually, the SAS were really only ever meant to be created for World War II, so they all got disbanded. And then because of this thing in situation in Malaya, it's like, hmm, maybe we should bring them back again and kind of make them permanent. So that's another important thing about Malaya. It did all work out in the end, sadly, not for the communist insurgents. So then Malaya became its own country, renamed itself Malaysia. But here's the fascinating thing going all the way back to Singapore. Singapore was part of all of this until the proclamation of Singapore in 1965, when the rest of Malaysia decided it didn't want Singapore as part of it, and so made Singapore independent. Singapore has the dubious honor of the only country in the world to become independent and not want it. It's like, what do you mean we're on our own? Yep, you're on your own, off you go. Good luck to you guys. Singapore was also during World War II the site of probably the biggest defeat in British military history. Singapore is a port and you know it's very vitally important for trade. It's doing very well nowadays as well. So because of that, the British had lots of coastal defenses. If you're a battleship trying to attack it, if you're trying to do a landing from the sea, you're gonna get blown to pieces. However, to the rear, it's all jungle and they figured nobody's gonna come that way. And that's exactly what the Japanese did. And the Japanese had less troops than the British and the British surrendered to them. This was all in late 41, early 42, this campaign. And it's incredibly ignominious sort of end to the, the, the sort of British forces in Singapore. And sadly, as they were marched off into these prison camps, most of them would, would eventually die underneath uh, Japanese torture and maltreatment of prisoners of war, which they were infamous for in World War II. So an incredibly sad story. But there's sort of like, weirdly, Singapore is an example where you know, it was built up by the British to be trading because British were British pretty good at that. So Singapore would not look like Singapore, a bit like Hong Kong. Both those places did very well out of the British Empire. They became concentrations of trade and money and commerce. And so they're weirdly an example of the positives that can come with working with the locals and using trade rather than war as a way to expand your empire. So there's a slightly awkward thought to finish on, but all of this you can extract from Crazy Rich Asians, Raya and the Last Dragon and Shang-Chi. Hope you enjoyed it. Another podcast coming soon.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.